Tonight I want to get into Joseph Smith's first vision account, um, of which there are a number of different versions. In the RLDS church growing up, uh, we basically saw the same version for the most part that LDS people were raised with. It is a version that's basically the Joseph Smith history, um, 1838 to 1856. Uh, basically, this is the version that was printed in Nauvoo. And uh, that's all I ever knew. That was what we were raised with. Uh, had never questioned that story in my life until I began to really study the scriptures. And not only the Bible, but in particular, the Book of Mormon really emphasize this point about the nature of God, about who he is, who Jesus is. And as the Holy Spirit began to testify to me of the truth of this nature of God, I, I began to wonder about Joseph Smith's vision. And it was about this same time that I became aware of a book that was published by someone who used to be RLDS and in there I discovered that there were multiple versions of the vision in the grove and in looking at that uh, it was quite interesting that there is only one version that is written in Joseph Smith's own handwriting and it is the earliest version and what shocked me was just how different that version was from the version that I had grown up with. Now, why is this important? I had a good friend ask me that question. Why, why is it important for us to, to talk about that? Or why should we worry about that? Um, that's a good question. And you got to appreciate friends who are willing to question you and, and ask you why that is important, why we must spend any time on it at all. And for me, there's a good answer for that because it changes everything about the nature of the restoration and what it really was and what it what it wasn't. We'll get into it, but the original version, the version that Joseph told originally, the earliest version that we have written in his own hand is is not just different in that there were two personages, the father and the son, versus one personage, etc. The difference is, is that the entire reason why Joseph went to pray in the first place is completely different. And furthermore, what the Lord says in response, what he hears from God, the message that he receives is again, and likewise, completely and radically different. And so one certainly furthers the agenda of the idea of a one true church denomination above all else and makes that the primal concern whereas the original count is a much more personal experience for joseph one regarding his own salvation and the anxiety that he had over his own soul about being right with god so if you are willing to take that journey with me, let's get into it.
Now, I've had a number of people asking me uh, recently, and, and from time to time I, I get an inquiry asking about the differences between the different versions of the vision in the grove, the first vision that Joseph Smith had, as it were. Um, and so another reason I thought it might be good to just talk about this, I won't make this long, um, but I'll let you know that you can find this account, in fact, all of the accounts on the josephsmithpapers.org website. Um, the website URL I have here is josephsmithpapers.org forward slash site forward slash accounts dash of dash the dash first dash vision. And I will put that in the description of the video and you should be able to see on the screen here. So in looking at this, we see that there are a number of versions, the earliest being written in 1832. Um, of course, this was not written right at the time or shortly thereafter of having this vision. Uh, this was done some years later, but it is the earliest version. It is the only one that is in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. Um, and so we're going to get into that. Um, there is another version, 1835. 1835, again, um, there's changes. There are definitely some differences. And there are two personages in this account, but the two personages that he describes are not the father and the son, but appear to be angels who are speaking or testifying of Christ. So, um, again, we're not having this idea of the father and the son, both in a body, both uh, looking at each other and being exact duplicates of one another. Um, it's not until we get into the Joseph Smith history, 1838, 1856. This is the best known account of Joseph Smith's first vision. Um, and it would become part of a six volume history of his life, uh, copied by scribes into a large bound volume. And this account was later on canonized by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Pearl of Great Price. And that is the account that most RLDS people are also familiar with. It is what I was raised with. Now, um, let's look at that version um, real briefly and just kind of hit the highlights of it because I want to do a contrast here from the first version. So here Joseph Smith is talking about all the different clergy and all the different denominations that were vying for membership and arguing with each other about um, how their faith was the right one. And Joseph Smith says he basically stayed aloof from all of them. Um, and according to him, felt that even when they converted, uh, yet they weren't really satisfied and seemed to be at each other's throats. And um, it is about this time in my 15th year, he says, my father's family was proselytized to the Presbyterian faith and four of them joined that church. During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and often pungent, I still kept myself aloof from these parties. All right. So uh, he does say that he was 
partial to the Methodist sect to some degree, but couldn't tell which one was right, and there's too much confusion and strife, um, says that he basically decided that he needed to know which one was right. Which of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong? So the whole purpose here for him going to God, for him going to prayer, is to find out what is the right church? Which one is the right church? They can't all be the right church. Which one is the right one? That's the whole context and the backdrop for why Joseph is saying that he went to prayer. So here we have the story that's very familiar to all of us, where he says that he was reading in the epistle of James, uh, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. And he says here, never did any passage of scripture come with more power to the heart of man that this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling in my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act, I did not know unless I could get more wisdom than I had. So... I like the way this is written here, um, and I do believe that this is probably accurate to what happened when he read that passage, um, probably sees it in greater context and clarity now, and certainly is more artful in how he describes it. Um, I have personally experienced this where I've read a passage of scripture and it just, it just hit me. And it's like the Holy Spirit just grabs hold of your heart and your mind and just your whole spirit just um, grabs hold of it and it becomes a centrally important thing. It's something that the Lord is wanting to share with you that is important, an important truth for you at this moment. And I like all that. I don't see a problem with that at all. I imagine that's very much the way it happened. And now as we go to the next page here. It says that at length I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or I must do as James directs. So he goes out to the woods when immediately he is seized upon some sort of power which entirely overcame him. He says such astonishing influence as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me and seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy, which had seized upon me. And at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, just at that moment, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy, which held me bound. Now, in the original account, we'll see that none of this happened as far as an enemy attacking him or a great darkness seizing upon him. None of those elements are there. Now, could he have left them out or didn't talk about them? Possibly. Appears to be a very powerful um, moment. Uh, one that I would think that would definitely have left an impression on somebody. Uh, but in any case, none of this is spoken of in the original account. But here we go. He sees, Joseph sees two personages. Now imagine this. You're praying to God and Satan has basically seized you. You've been seized by darkness. Your very soul is about to be destroyed. What a harrowing experience. And then uh, a light bursting forth from the heavens. 
at the, the brightness of the sun. And then two personages appear whose brightness and glory defy all description, he says, standing above me in the air. Now, I'd like to mention here that when you're looking at documents, historical documents, and a progression or an evolution of a story being told and trying to find out what is the most accurate form of that story, uh, of course, you always want to go back to that which is proven to be the original author's handwriting or the document that they actually created themselves. And you want to look at what is the earliest documentation. And so when we're looking at something that maybe evolved a bit, uh, especially if it was a printed article published on behalf of Joseph that the church published, uh, whether or not he got to review that article and edit it himself in any way, shape or form, we do not know. Uh, we do know that it was not actually written by him, but I wonder if there isn't some confusion or there wasn't an attempt on the part of the author of this document, which is the newest document, the one that is the, the furthest away from the original account. If there wasn't an attempt to bridge the gap between the two accounts that came before it, because the version that came in 1835, that was the second version that was a printed version, not in Joseph's handwriting, speaks at this point about two angels that appear to him and testify of Christ. And so as I'm looking at this version that was printed in Nauvoo years later, um, we see here two personages. And I must wonder if this isn't possibly the two angels that Joseph saw. And instead here, we're going to get that it is the father and the son. Now, regardless of whether you encountered two angels or you encountered the Lord, or as in this last version that we get that the church produces in Nauvoo, you're meeting the father and the son. Regardless of that, are you not going to be completely overwhelmed at this point, especially if you're in the presence of of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in the presence of God, you're going to be completely overwhelmed. And if you're standing before God, whatever it looks like in your mind, after having almost been destroyed by the enemy, now standing in the very presence of God, what is the first thing that's going to enter into your mind? What's the first thing you're going to say? Can you even speak? Would you even know what to say? Would you probably forget everything of what your purposes, your thoughts, what your what you thought was important? Is it any even important anymore? Are you not going to just bask in his presence and fall down upon your knees and probably weep and and just be and, and just marvel and just bask in his presence and all the things that could come to your mind, I, I don't know what they might be. God has just spoken to him and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. So we're supposed to be in an attitude of listening. But what Joseph says next is, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all these churches was right, that I might know which one to join. 
No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects were right. Which of all these churches are right? For this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. And which should I join? Now, is this really the question? Now, I'm just going to say this. Something doesn't feel right here. Now, what I'm about to say, you can, you can dismiss and you can disagree with me. What I will offer you is my sincere opinion. But if you're ever standing in the very presence of God, I'm guessing that even after you recover, this is probably not going to seem so important. But if it is, if it's that important to you, you need to know which of the churches are the right churches. And that's what you ask. I'm guessing Jesus is not interested in answering that question. Everything I know of him, that's not a question that he... I think God is above those things and his purposes and his designs for us go well beyond these types of earthly matters. I think back to all of the patriarchs, both in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, all the spiritual great leaders that we can read about and their interactions with God. Were they about what sect to join? Is God even interested in telling you what sect is right? Every time it's not about a sect or a group. Which group is right? Which group is wrong? It's not about Pharisees versus Sadducees. You know, even the apostles tried to get caught up in that. They tried to forbid someone who was casting out devils, you know, healing the sick, doing it in Jesus' name. They tried to forbid him. Why? Because they told Jesus, because he was not with our group, we forbid him. And Jesus said, forbid him not. He that is not against us is for us. And yet Joseph Smith is going to ask him to pick which is the right church here. All right. And now here's God's answer in this version. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they're all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all the creeds are an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, etc. So here God is dismissing all of the churches, all of their creeds, all of their professors, all of their preachers. I guess none of them had any light and truth. None of them had the Holy Spirit to any degree. None of them were responding to the truth that they saw in the Bible, responding in good faith and being led by God. None of them. They're all wrong. Every single one of them, completely wrong. And Joseph was to join none of them. Now, what's interesting about that is that if this is true, then I have a hard time reconciling the fact that the records show that in June of 1828, this is after God supposedly told him to join none of them, that Joseph Smith applied for membership in his wife's Methodist church. And he also joined the Methodist classes that were taught there. And he had every intention of joining with them. 
So if this is God telling you this, I think you'd remember that. If God told you to join none of them, they're, they're an abomination to him. And then a few years down the line, you go and join one. I, I would wonder why. Now this version that we're so familiar with was written, and not in Joseph's hand, but others wrote it. And it is written during a time where the church has been firmly established. There's now a hierarchy and there are all uh, different kinds of priesthood. And there's a whole city that has been built uh, surrounding the church and, and all of its teachings. And, um, and truly, they are fully in the embrace of the doctrine of the one true church, the notion of the one true church the only ones with authority because they're the only ones who have this priesthood that was restored. And so all these doctrines that came along 1834 and 1835 and after are now established at this time. And so it's interesting that the story of the first vision takes on the tones of propagating and supporting the premise that this is a one true church and that all other churches are wrong. None of the other churches have any authority. None of them have God's spirit at all. Only this one church is approved. So it's interesting that the first vision of Joseph appears to be modified to accompany that narrative. Now let's go and look at the first original vision as Joseph Smith put it down in 1832. Again, this is the earliest and the most personal count. Uh, it's the only one in his own handwriting. Okay, here you can see Joseph Smith's own handwriting on the left-hand side and the transcript on the right. Um, as you can see, uh, being in Joseph Smith's own hand, the writing is considerably poorer than that that was written by the scribes in Nauvoo. Um, but I want you to pay close attention to this, to the spirit of it, and pay close attention to the differences between this story and the one that we just read. I was born in the town of Sharon in the state of Vermont. North America on the 23rd day of December AD 1805 of goodly parents who spared no pains to instructing me in the Christian religion. At the age of about 10 years, my father, Joseph Smith Sr., uh, moved to Pymara, Ontario County in the state of New York and being in indigent circumstances were obliged to labor hard for the support of a large family having nine children, and as it required their exertion of all that they were able to render any assistance for the support of the family, therefore we were deprived of the benefit of an education, suffice it to say, I was merely instructed in reading and writing and in the ground rules of arithmetic, which constituted my whole literary acquirements. At about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to all the important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, 
which led me to searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contained the word of God, thus applying myself to them and my intimate acquaintance with those of different denominations, led me to marvel exceedingly, for I discovered that they did not adorn their professions by a holy walk and godly conversation. So here are some small differences. We still have that there are men of different denominations who basically are teaching that they have the right way. Okay. Uh, but Joseph Smith is noticing that these people do not seem to walk in a holy manner. And so there are some similar qualities here to what we read in the later version. But let's go on. So he's basically saying that these men are not walking in a fashion that he believes they should be based on what he's reading in the scriptures, the sacred depository, as he's saying here, which is the Bible. And this was grief to my soul. Thus, from the age of 12 years to 15, I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world of mankind, the contentions and divisions that wickedness and abominations and darkness pervading in the minds of mankind. And this distressed him, okay? For I became convicted of my sins. Now, I want you to take notice here. How this begins, not with which church is right, but the whole thing begins with him having the all-important concern for the welfare of his own immortal soul. And then we skip down here, and again, there's darkness and wickedness that he sees around him, abominations, and this exceedingly distressed, for I became convicted of my sins. Okay, And by my searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized from the true and living faith. And there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. Now, I don't think these were actually his thoughts at age 15 exactly. I think this is him looking back and putting into maybe better wording um, coming from the experience of what he knows at this point. But I do believe that he, like many of us, um, looking at the scriptures, when we read about what the apostles did, when we read about the disciples of old, when we, when we read those stories, um, you cannot help but look around at the condition of the church today. And I don't care what church you're looking at. Just look at the condition of Christianity or Mormonism, if you if you will. And compared to that, we are so far away. So it wasn't just in Joseph Smith day. It remains that way now. Uh, it continues to. And so, sadly, um, we need to aspire to something greater. And I think that is something that Joseph Smith definitely was feeling and sensing. He's probably reading the New Testament. He sees the miracles that are happening. He sees lives being changed. And yet, in the world today, what he's seeing is hypocrisy, I think. And so I believe this is very much true, um, even if he may not have thought about it in these terms. At, the, at that time when he was 15, he certainly was feeling like, you know, things aren't what they should be, for sure.
And he goes on and says, And I felt to mourn for my own sins and the sins of the world. For I learned in the scriptures that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he was no respecter of persons, for he was God. For I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon, rolling in their majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in the courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth on the face of the earth in majesty and in strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things which are so exceedingly great and marvelous, even in the likeness of him who created them. And when I considered upon these things, my heart exclaimed, Well hath the wise man said, It is a fool that saith in his heart, There is no God. Now, Again, this is an experience I've had myself, and I think many of you have as well. So this rings very true, definitely, um, where you're just looking and marveling at creation and all there is and have that moment where the Spirit is really testifying. That you see that all of creation testifies of God, and you just know that He is. So I love what's being said here. Um, very much a different tune. It's not all about the wrangling between different denominations and which one is right and which one should I join. But it really is this very personal experience in depth. And it's really centered on the welfare of his own soul, his own sins, and what will become of him. His own salvation is at the heart of this whole thing. Let's go on and we'll read. My heart exclaimed, all these bear testimony and bespeak an omnipotent and omnipresent power, a being who maketh laws and decreeth and bindeth all things in their bounds, who filleth eternity, who was and is and will be from all eternity to eternity. And when I considered all these things, and that that being seeketh such to worship him, as worship him in spirit and truth, therefore I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else whom I could go and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard me cry in the wilderness in the attitude of calling upon the Lord. Okay, I want to stop right there. And the Lord heard me cry in the wilderness. You know, how many times have you heard this vision referred to as the vision in the grove? The vision in the grove. Okay, so groves were a place where pagans went um, to meet their pagan deities and do sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals. And a lot of anti-Mormon groups have pointed that out. Um, I just want to point out here that Joseph Smith did not go out to a grove. It is the groves that the Lord God condemned and the Israelites going to these sacred groves to worship their pagan idols in the Old Testament that was condemned. And so I, I just find it interesting that uh, along as time goes by and the corruptions that enter into the church, that not only are we changing our stories of what really happened, what the restoration is really about, inventing things that didn't even exist, that God didn't tell us about, or wasn't a part of anything in the plan, but somehow men came up with these things, these traditions, these rules, these revelations, and we're coming up with terms that have really just condemn us. You know, this 
um, idea that Joseph went out to the grove. So he's not in the grove here. I'm just going to say, um, look, he went out to cry in the wilderness. And is this not what we see in the Bible when we see with Moses when he fled into the wilderness? Is this not where John the Baptist was, where Jesus went for 40 days and 40 nights? Is this not um, what we see with Abraham and what we saw with Jacob? The going out into the wilderness to meet with the Lord. And many of us now are in the wilderness. And so I just want to point that out. It's the wilderness. He just went out into the woods. A young boy went out into the woods. Okay. Now he says, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down and rested upon me. All right. Now that right there is exactly basically what we read in the later edition of this vision, this experience that he had. And I was filled with the spirit of God. All right, so there's no darkness here. Uh, Satan's not seeking to destroy him. He goes out the woods to pray. He's coming to approach God. And then he sees light. This light that's unexplainably bright. And he is filled with the spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me. And I saw the Lord. Okay, who's he see here? And I saw the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way. Walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. So who's speaking here? It's Jesus. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't see God the Father. He sees God the Son. And uh, this makes so much more sense to me because uh, at no time in the Bible or in the Book of Mormon has anyone seen the Father. They, they may have a vision where they see the Son on the right hand of the throne of God. But explain to me what that looks like in a vision. Is it two men sitting next to each other, each with a physical body? It doesn't say that. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus declaring and saying who he is and that Joseph's sins are forgiven. Now remember, this is the entire reason for Joseph coming out here. He's not even entered into his mind to ask God which church is right. He's out there, brokenhearted, knows that what he's seeing is not right. He doesn't have the answer. He doesn't know what is right. He's not trying to find the answer for the whole world. He's trying to find the answer for himself. He, he needs to know, what do I need to do, Lord? And so the Lord tells him what he told so many in the New Testament. He says, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way and sin no more. And he says, all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. Behold, the world lieth in sin. And at this time, none doeth good. No, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel and keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And my anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to ungodliness and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. 
Okay. And here we see some elements that are similar to what we read in the later edition. And Jesus is saying that none are truly doing good. Now, why would that be? If God appeared to someone today, do you think he might say something similar? And is this a condemnation of every single individual on earth? All the meek and lowly spirits, those who were exercising faith in Christ? I don't think so. I do think this was a general statement about the overall condition of the world, the spiritual condition of most people, basically. That overall, this is the condition. The whole world is in, in darkness. And here we are yet again in darkness. I'm not sure we ever left it. And he says, Behold, and lo, I come quickly, as it is written of me in the cloud, clothed in the glory of my Father. And my soul was filled with love for many days. I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me, but could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Okay. So, the main point here is that Joseph... Had his sins forgiven. All he has to do is follow the word of the Lord as he gives it. And believe on Christ so you can have eternal life. And the condition of the world is not good. And that Jesus is going to come as it is written in the scriptures. And his kingdom is going to come. And this experience, which is not about which church to join. It's about... Lord, I know I have these sins and I don't know what to do to be forgiven. And that is what was on his heart. That was what was on his mind that day. And what was the Lord's answer? Your sins are forgiven. It was as simple as that. And so he was filled with love. He was filled with joy for many days. And he rejoiced with great joy. And the Lord was with him. How was he with him? In spirit, I would imagine. But no one believed the heavenly vision. Nevertheless, I pondered these things in my heart. But after many days, I fell into transgression and sinned in many things, which brought a wound upon my soul. And there were many things which transpired that cannot be written. And my father's family have suffered many persecutions and afflictions. And it came to pass when I was 17 years of age, I called again upon the Lord, and he showed me a heavenly vision. For behold, an angel of the Lord came and stood before me. And it was by night, and he called me by name. And he said, The Lord had forgiven my sins, and revealed unto me that in the town of Manchester, Ontario County, New York, there was plates of gold, upon which there was engravings, which was engraven by Moroni and his fathers, the servants of the living God in ancient days and deposited by the commandment of God. All right. So this is where Joseph first is told about the plates. And as we see that even though he was forgiven of his sins and told to send no more, like all of us human beings, I would imagine he fell into sin again. And like all other human beings, sinned after that too and so this is why we need a savior all right so very simple um here it is i've never read it before i've never really looked at or saw this version 
but this is the only one that is in his own handwriting. I know there are many things attributed to Joseph. Can we be certain? I can tell you that the next version that comes out a couple years later, and this would be during a time when the church has been in, under condemnation, everything's fallen apart, they've been driven out of Missouri. And there are many things that seem to be espoused at this time that are, I don't believe, from the Lord and are contradictory to the Book of Mormon. And it's during that time that the next version would be recorded of this encounter with God. But in that encounter, even in that one, there isn't God the Father appearing in a bodily form. So it would not be until Nauvoo that we have this happen. And of course, it's not Nauvoo that we see a theology beginning to emerge. A theology, perhaps that God has a body, or maybe that there are multiple gods. And so I seriously question that account for many reasons. But most importantly, because a kid who's hearing brimstone and fire sermons, uh, accounts of hell, uh, ravishing your soul, uh, needing salvation. If you don't do the right thing, you're, you're going to be cast into hell for all eternity. I mean, these are the kinds of things that would bother a teenager. These are the kinds of things that could really worry you. And when you're hearing different things and nobody's really agreeing on what it is you need to do, foremost uh, concern on your mind is like, which one is right? Because I'm scared. I need to know the truth. Foremost on your mind is not which of these denominations are the right one. You just want to know what the truth is. And Joseph goes there knowing that he's a sinner. That much he knows. That much he's been taught. You're a sinner. And more than that, he knows he is. He knows he's committed sins. And so he needs help. He doesn't know what to do. And the answer he receives matches his question. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And so why is this important? Why is it important to talk about this? Well, in my mind, because it changes so much. Because Joseph didn't go there to find out which church is right. And God didn't tell Joseph that all the churches are wrong and not to join any of them. The whole thing is a pretext and set up for, I'm going to set up the one true church, the one good church, and you'll start it, Joseph. And that's really what is at the heart of that version or that account of this experience. It's all about who's the right denomination. But as we read in this account, none of that is there. Yeah, there are elements of that the whole world is in darkness and do not fully understand God. Yes, but the focus is not on showing that every church or every minister or every person is 100% wrong or an abomination. And that, yes, Joseph, you're, you're better than everyone else. And now you are my lone messenger and that you will establish the one true church. None of that is present either directly or indirectly in this but instead a very personal personal encounter an experience that had nothing to do with those more 
lofty ideas. In this original version, Jesus is the Jesus I know from the Bible and the Book of Mormon. He's not worrying about picking the right church denomination or this group versus that group, but he's, as a shepherd, coming for the lost sheep. And when one of them cries out, he goes and finds him, and he brings him back, and he forgives us of our sins and restores us. And that is the Jesus I know, and that is the Jesus that Joseph meets here out in the woods, in the wilderness, crying out to God because the anguish of his own soul. Well, there's something for you to ponder. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to accept my opinion. Um, perhaps there are things that I've said I shouldn't have said and may offend you. It is not my intention to do so. But at the very least, I hope this gives you something to ponder. And perhaps we can use this as just one more motivator or one more inspiration to get beyond the one true church garbage and just get with Jesus. Um, and by doing so, we become his church. We become his church. We become his people. We become part of the body. And I will tell you that with no uncertainty at all, 100% I know, I know with everything that my soul can bear witness to the truth of this as the Holy Spirit bears witness to it, as the scriptures bear witness to it, that are save two churches only. One is the church of Christ and the other is the church of Satan. And the true church of Christ, there is only one doesn't know any denominational barriers. This isn't about that church versus that church or my church and which one is better. These notions, if we got them from this version of the vision of the grove that was printed in Nauvoo, I think we're better off to leave it behind because we carried it with us into the future. And I believe that a people who want to walk in that spirit and think with those kinds of thoughts, that we are destined to be excluded from the kingdom of God. For those who seek to exclude others because they don't match exactly everything that you believe or your opinion about whatever scriptures, and especially those who would exclude others because they're not in your group, even as the apostles tried to exclude that man who was walking in the authority of Jesus Christ. And Jesus scolded them for doing that. I think he would scold us today for doing that. And so that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Joseph said, he is. And so I don't believe in the Jesus who tells Joseph that all these other churches are bad to not join any of them. And if God had said that, then why did Joseph go and join one after that? So did they have problems? Yeah. That's why the Book of Mormon came forth. It says to correct the stumbling of the Gentiles. God's not condemning these people. My goodness. 
They're responding in faith to the Bible, which previously hadn't been available to them. Not only that, but they, they had to escape persecutions in other countries to come here. They had to come here so they could freely worship according to the dictates of their own conscience so that they could seek out the truth. And they did. Did they get it all right? No. But who did? Did Joseph? No, I don't think so. Do we now? No. <laughs> it's pride and arrogance to think that. So let us humble ourselves and be meek before the Lord and let him change us and move us and teach us and grow us. Let us be humble and receive one another as brothers and sisters and put aside these walls and barriers that are man-made. And let God join us together by his spirit, by his word. Amen. Until next time. God bless.